Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So, Wherever you buy books, audio, and video, pick it up today, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How, How are you doing, doing today, today, Steve? Oh, we <laughs> How are you doing today? <laughs> well, I think we're both doing good yeah. because uh, this episode is going to be about finally Dune unmade versions of dune and the reason i say finally i assume our listeners probably know this but maybe if you're just tuning in for the first time worth summing up that this entire podcast really is a continuation of a documentary that steve made called yodorowsky's dune if you have not seen it it is a fantastic documentary but it's uh really it's just all about how alejandro yodorowsky tried to make dune in the 70s and all the amazing things that went into uh, and came out of that ultimately failed production. Um, but so in some ways, that was where we felt we don't need to do that story on this podcast because Steve already made a whole movie about it that went way more in depth than we would ever be able to get on the podcast as far as guests. But there's also uh, many, many other unmade versions of Dune, including ones before Yodorowsky even gave it a try. And those are the ones we're primarily going to be focusing on uh, on these episodes here. And we have two great guests to help us out for that, I think. Uh, we have <laughs> Mark Bennett, who runs a website and all the, you know, socials connected to it called Dune Info. Uh, how you doing today, Mark? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you are coming all the way from the UK, which is always exciting. It's the beginning of the day for us, end of the day for you. 
Also joining us is returning champion, who you may recognize his uh, wonderful voice from the At the Mountains of Madness episode, and that is actor Jesse Merlin. How you doing, Jesse? Always delighted to be back. You know, uh, we're, we're such uh, fans and nerds of this movie. Uh, Josh and I got together before the apocalypse a couple of years ago to play the old uh, Avalon Hill board game. Uh, we had a whole table of six, so we're, we're lifers. Uh. <laughs> and I, I think it's, I think that game lasted like six, seven hours, too. That was a, a very epic board game day. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah, the guild player won, which is fairly predictable much of the time, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I'm very excited to get into this. Uh, as I was saying to these guys before we started, I've read the first three books. I've seen both movies. I consider myself probably more knowledgeable of Dune than just say the rav the average human being. But uh, anytime I talk to somebody who really knows their shit, uh, it points out to me that I, I really am not a Dune super fan. <laughs> so I think it's great that we've got you guys helping us out uh, on this journey. And I guess before we even get into it, uh, I think it might be interesting for the audience to hear Mark, Steve, your guys' connection, both to Dune and obviously each other and Steve's doc. Yeah, uh, to set up Mark, uh, before, when I, when I first heard about Jorowski's Dune, it was through a website called The Symbol That Grows. And there was only like this little tiny, um, this little tiny, uh, poster art for it that's taken from like one of the original um, pressings of dune and it said jordorowski's dune and that's when i first became aware of it but then for years nothing else was online and then when i started pre-production god years ago um all of a sudden mark's website popped up and he was like the first to put up like all the main information about jordorowski's dune all the main details the co uh, the concept art you know, telling the story about Mobius and just putting it all online for the first time. And we got in touch with him. And throughout the process of making Jorowski's Dune, he was a huge, huge help for us. Like, so we've been in touch ever since. And uh, yeah, and I, I, but I've never really asked Mark how he even started the website or anything like that. Or <laughs> we've just, you know, just been in touch. Yeah. What, what's years. your origin story on it all? Yeah. Uh, so originally at university, when the when it was Mosaic browser before even Netscape uh, started. Um, the second-hand bookshop, and there was a making of Star Wars, which is all over the net now, but, you know, it was a 1977 souvenir magazine, and that had behind-the-scenes pictures, so I put some of those online. And then I found the making of Dune book by Ed Naha, um, who's also written a few scripts, I think. Um, and I started scanning that in and, and making a website, and so that's been running since 1994, I think through various iterations. And then as part of that research on Lynch's Dune, you know, you, you find information about previous um, attempts and Jodorowsky's name keeps popping up. And I gradually pulled more and more information together of that and found magazines and press kits and stuff and put that online. And I think that's what uh, Stephen found. And just, you know, on a personal level, what is your, as someone who's clearly invested a lot of time to Dune as an overall franchise, like what is it about that franchise for you that has such a strong appeal? Uh, originally, it was the, the Lynch's movie, uh, because when you read uh, about the making of it, it was meant to be this Star Wars killer, this ne next generation of Star Wars. And, you know, uh, $40 million, $40 million spent on production, apparently, you know, huge cast, huge sets, special effects. And it just failed. And so the, the failure of Dune was really how I got into it and my fascination with Lynch's Dune, because it's a beautiful film, but fatally flawed in many ways, but I still love it. Uh, and then that got me into the books and all of the book series I've read. So it's a great science fiction series, but ultimately it's my, Lynch, uh, my love of Lynch's Dune that connects me to the series. Uh, and it probably, I'm sure, uh, a question any listeners will wonder from a bunch of people who really like Dune. And we don't have to get into any specifics. <laughs> this is almost just thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, what did everyone think of the new movie? <laughs> thumbs up from Mark. I know yep. Steve, big <laughs> thumbs up. Thumbs up from <laughs> Jesse. Thumbs up for me as well. Uh, I think it was a good adaptation. 
and I'm very excited that they're doing another one. Part of me still kind of wishes that uh, all the exact same people and the same amount of money had made like a HBO TV series. Like that's the new Game of Thrones. But I doubt they would have gotten all the same people or the same money for the for that. So uh, I'll just be I happy bet, with what I got. I bet 10 years from now, that's going to get greenlit, like the Lord of the Rings TV yeah. show or something. I bet eventually it's going to turn into a TV but show. They are doing a, a Sisterhood of June HBO series. Yeah, and I guess you'd probably know more than me. Is that is that based? I know it's not based on anything Frank Herbert wrote. I don't know if it's taking anything from the like his son's prequels it's, or. Um, there's conflicting information. So there is a prequel book called The Sisterhood of June, and some reports say it was based on that book, and then other reports say it's not. Uh, tweets get put up and then taken, deleted by people. So it's very hard to actually know exactly what it's about but denny villeneuve will be directing the first episode of that oh that's pretty cool um on well, steve where do you want to begin here uh how do we kick this off I, i'm just assuming that anyone who's tuning into these episodes is familiar with both dune and what happens in the novels i don't think we need to go into too much detail about that yeah probably not but uh, do we i'm sorry do we want to know Jesse, since I've known you, you've been a huge Dune fan. Like, I mean, where, where, where did yeah, your attraction come to it? I'm always curious. Oh, yeah, man. No, from from early childhood, seeing uh, the Lynch Dune in its uh, general release at far too young an age to appropriately see it and then playing with the toys that Christmas. I got in at a very young <laughs> age and Canon was weird at that point. I think he'd only written through um, through maybe God Emperor. So I got the uh, the Dune Encyclopedia, which is totally non-canonical now. And that, that was written about the same time. Um, and, you know, from the library, maybe 10 times before I was able to find my own copy of it. And yeah, I love the board game. I love all of Frank's original books, particularly. I'm one of the few people you'll, you'll meet who loves uh, Heretics and Chapter House the most. That's where I failed the first attempt. And that's where a lot of people give up. But for me, those final two books are like Frank's best work. Um, but, you know, I was also an alien, um, the Ridley Scott alien super fan, and I had a lot of magazines and I was a Giger super fan. And in a lot of these Giger books and articles and magazines, you would find pictures of the Harkonnen throne room from the Jodorowsky Dune. You'd see some of his art, some of his original designs, and it was so tantalizing. It was like, what is this? Where, where, where did this go? What, I knew it existed. But aside from like Cine Fantastique or Fantastic Films or a handful of other genre magazines, like it only existed in a kind of looming legend. Uh, there wasn't much concrete about it. And so, yeah, and so now I, I love the LGN toys, uh, LJN toys. I love the Avalon Hill board game. And, uh, and I'm just so happy it's finding a new audience um, with, with this, this movie. Um, but, like, but like our friend, we, uh, I have a, a, gener a genuine love for the Lynch movie as, as, a, as a flawed masterpiece. That's so funny. Yeah, that's that's where I I mean, they probably heard on the show before. That's that's where my fascination came up with Dune was because of Lynch's movie, because it was supposed to be the next Star Wars. Like Return of the Jedi came out and it was kind of depressing. I think it was the second or third time I saw it in the theater knowing, oh, this is the last Star Wars. But then when Dune was coming on the horizon, it was exciting. Like, oh, there's a new this, this is going to be the next Star Wars. And and I taped it on VHS <laughs> I taped it on Betamax, I believe. And I watched it over and over again until I liked it because I never got it. I just couldn't <laughs> stop watching. I got to watch. I got to understand this. I got to like this movie. And I, and then throughout the years, it's just, God, I love that movie. But anyway. I think yeah. a lot of people uh, taped from cable in the early days, the extended TV Alan Smithy edit. That's the one I watched over and over and over, which is kind of hard to sit through now. <laughs> yeah <laughs> unfortunately i know i tried to watch it like last year and i was like i can't watch this ah uh, but there's anyway. a new there's a new fan edit supercut that's supposed to be really good i've got a date to see that soon with supposed to be the best elements of the lynch and the smithy cut together yeah the, the spice diver cut is generally considered to be the, the best one yeah what's right? it called um, spice diver spice diver i like it. i love it <laughs> like the dio song <laughs> nice. well, I guess. so you approve of it it's, it's worth watching i i, I still prefer the, the lynchers one because you know okay. it's you can, there's only so much you can do with you know editing stuff in from the um extended edition into it you know you, you've got to work with the assets you got so bits are still missing there's still a lot of music in there that you know is shouldn't really be 
at that point in the film and and stuff but uh it's it's the best extended edition there is but for me lynch's version is the one to watch right on good to know all right so all right to dig into the timeline uh frank herbert's book was originally released in 1965 and the first attempt at dune which i've only seen in one place is uh is Daily Variety, November 3rd, 1971. It was announced that Roger Corman's New World Pictures had purchased the rights to Frank Herbert's book. And principal photography was scheduled to begin in summer 1972 in Czechoslovakia. And that is the only piece of information I could ever find about this version. And I'm kind of bummed when Josh and I interviewed Roger Corman for my shark documentary. I'm, I'm bummed. I forgot to even bring this up to him because <laughs> I was so in, you know, shark world mode, but man, you know, but anyway, one of these days. Um, and then after that, Arthur P. Jacobs names pops up. And for people that don't know, Arthur P. Jacobs is the producer of the planet of the Apes series. And up to this point, he produced uh, planet of the apes beneath the planet of the apes and escape from the planet of the apes. So he was a pretty huge producer in Hollywood. And so this is interesting. So now in 1972, the, what we're going to talk about, one of the first expanded treatments came out March 31st, 1972 by Joe Ford. Who I couldn't really find much info. Yeah, I couldn't on. find anything on him either. I don't know if it's just too generic of a name, but I, I really, I, I basically couldn't even find an IMDb page for what seemed like would have been this guy. Uh, same here. Yeah, it was really odd. And then Bob Greenhunt, who is a pretty big producer. Yeah, Robert Greenhunt. He produced a ton of Mike Nichols movies, a ton of Woody Allen movies. Uh, I think he was associate producer on Dog Day Afternoon. Produced movies oh, wow. like Big. Like he had a pretty, pretty veteran career spanning several decades. Yeah, Working Girl, uh, The King of Comedy, some really big movies. Yeah. And so he also, uh, he also went on to be a, a unit production manager on Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, which I think were also Jacob's movies um, oh. or, or connected or the Tom Sawyer one, at least the yeah. ones from the 70s. Right. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Before I get into it, I got to thank Mark. Mark helped me out a lot with this outline. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> so thank you, Mark. Like a lot thank of you. this is no a, a lot of research. Mark also pulled together throughout the years, which was a huge help with the uh, research I got back in the day when I was working on Jodorowsky's Dune, the found, uh, when I found the Jacob papers, but Mark, huge help within this outline that I'm going through. So yeah, more than welcome to jump in, man, if you need to. Um, and actually, I was just gonna say, as long as we're paused here, I think just something interesting to get from you fans before we even get into these other attempts. I feel like Dune is sometimes, well, you'll see pop up on lists of, like unadaptable books. And I've hmm. never, and I, you know, and I, I only read the book for the first time somewhat recently, a few years ago, and I was kind of blew my mind reading through it, how adaptable it seemed to me. I'm like, I don't, this is pretty mm -hmm. straightforward. Like, like it's epic. It would be very expensive, but I mean, to me, I feel like that's saying like game of Thrones is unadaptable because mm. the world's too big. When I think of an unadaptable book, I think of one where I, I can't even imagine how you translate, like what's good about the book into a movie. How can actors even do any of this stuff? Uh, but, but what are your guys feeling? Like, do you think that Dune, there's something unadaptable about it? I think part of it is it's 600 pages. So immediately, you know, if you're going to make one movie, then you've got to throw a lot of it away. And there's also uh, plans within plans and plots within plots. So trying to get that complexity across on screen, uh, if you wanted to, you know, do every detail of it, it would be impossible. But the, the main thrust of the story um, is, as you say, a relatively simple plot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just what do you focus on that? Do you focus on the hero's journey? Do you focus on the environmental aspects? Do you focus on the religious aspects or the political aspects? Um, so every adaptation seems to try and focus on a different point of that. So the Peter Berg adaptation was very much going to be an action adventure uh, take on Dune, which I think a lot of the fans were not happy about at all. And uh, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're pretty happy that it didn't get made. Um, yeah, we'll probably get to that one later, but I, I agree because like that one, which is weird, it's like it's exactly 120 pages. 
So you could see like the, the producer's note. This can't yeah. go over 120 <laughs> pages, which is two hours. You know, so it, it ends. It's like it's weird. And that's like another reason why. Like, but um, I no, wanted but I hear, to also. Yeah. Oh, no, please, go. Steve. No, no, you no, go I just, first. I just wanted to say that I think one of the things and it's common to just great literature generally, like, you know, like Jodorowsky comparing it to Proust so much of Dune, especially the first book. There are chapters where over 50 percent of the text is spent on the inner life of the characters and what they're feeling and thinking in their own inner monologue. And that's like that's that's challenging to translate. I mean, I, uh, David Lynch or maybe more likely Dino De Laurentiis tried to do that with voiceover uh, to varying degrees of success in the 1984, you know. But uh, I think that's that's a real pitfall with as written, you know. Yeah, it's tough. It, it's gonna it's gonna be tough because you know, like the Watchmen came out. He had pretty much used that as a storyboard and told the exact movie, and people hated it, and they were even <laughs> complaining that it's just like the book, you know. And it's like I don't know when any. Yeah, I just think no one will ever be satisfied. You know, people are always going to be angry at something being. I mean, I get a lot of crap constantly for loving David Lynch's Dune, but it's like, no, but I, you know, but I'm still blown away what he managed to fit in that tight running time of that movie, you know, and uh, but we'll never see what sucks is what, you know, there was supposed to be like a director's cut that was going to come out on VHS. We never got it. and We'll never see his true vision of it. And that's what sucks. Because there is the extended stuff in that TV cut. And then when you go through the book that Mark was talking about, the, the making of Dune, there's like little photos in there that's not in that cut. And you're like, how much was shot <laughs> that still hasn't been seen to this day? You know, we're having exactly the same conversations with the new Dune movie, though, as well, because there's the scenes that we know were shot, there's pictures of it, there's behind the scenes footage. And, you know, even at two and a half hours, uh, half the book, there's still stuff that was cut and fans are clamoring for those deleted scenes as well. So you Release can't the Snyder cut of Dune. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bet we'll eventually get that. It only makes sense, right? Yeah, I mean, HBO is probably already plotting their extended version that'll only be available on HBO <laughs> Max. And Oh, that's going to be awesome. Did you hear David or Jason Momoa was... Um lobbying for a director's cut of the new Denny Villeneuve and and Denny had to come out and say no no this is the director's cut there isn't going to be another one <laughs> they've been having a public dialogue about it oh that's hilarious yeah, yeah cuz he's probably in a lot more of it too than i guess where are all my scenes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh he was great uh yeah i i totally all right so all right. So what's interesting about this first treatment, uh, March 31st, 1972, is that Jacobs hasn't even acquired the rights to Dune yet. And this was kind of like determining if this could be translated into into a movie, if it's possible. And so these guys were hired to put this together to check out and see like, all right, if this works, then I will negotiate and try to get the deal to uh, get the rights to this. And so I wanted to ask Josh, is that common in Hollywood for people to commission a script or a treatment when you haven't got the rights? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, both. Yeah. Uh, I think I think it happens a lot of times accidentally. Uh, I'm actually I, my writing partner and I made it all the way up to you could say winning the like bake off to get the rights to be attached to this uh, big video game movie. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait, the studio. And this is a big studio. This isn't just some like guy uh, realized like, oh, uh, our rights might have lapsed on this. We need to like figure that out and renegotiate it. And then I think other times that's also just kind of, you know, fake it till you make it swinging for the fences being like, maybe if we can come at the rights holders with like a really exciting presentation, they'll give it to us on a cheap option or who knows what. And some people are maybe just duplicitous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I, well, that takes us to this first uh, treatment. Okay. So this is the Joe Ford, Bob Greenhunt dated uh, 331.72. Um, and Jesse, we were going to have you read. So both of the things we're talking about today, I'll just highlight for the audience, uh, are not scripts. They're just very long treatments but this one in particular by green hunt also has random pages that they wrote out like a script 
Title message. The Bene Gesserit operated for centuries behind the blind of a semi-mystic school while carrying on their selective breeding program. The program had as its target the breeding of a person they labeled Kwisatz Haderach, a kind of supermentat. Montage, possible titles. Great oceans, lush green fox rests, rolling hillsides, waterfalls, the planet Caladan. Note, the locations for this montage should be chosen for their unusual or unearthly qualities, such as that fantastic uh, 150 foot waterfall in the Amazon or parts of the Puerto Rican experimental rainforest. Southern desert, the planet Arrakis. Location note, skeleton coast of Southwest Africa or Algerian Sahara. A vast expanse of absolutely arid desolation. The huge windswept dunes make up the only definition of surface save for a mountain range visible on the north horizon. The size of the dunes gives them almost the stature of a mountain. More desolation. Awesome. One tree long dead, every last drop of moisture sucked from its body. An electronic hum is faintly heard under the sound of the wind. Mechanically made tracks lead us to a mobile mining platform. Sand spews out from the belly of the platform as it lowers slowly into the desert floor. Interior, mining platform. A uniformed controller sits at a panel. He is distinguished by the stark blue of his eyes. That's our high for the week. 80%. Get it in. Switches are thrown. Sounds change. Exterior, southern desert. The platform has stopped its descent. Another vehicle with different markings slithers across the desert toward the platform. Interior, mining platform. The rest of the mining crew at work, identical uniforms, one of them studies equipment monitoring amounts and quality of melange being harvested. Crew is loose. Kid about retiring on what this one load of melange would bring in if you can get it off the planet. Malfunction warning. The electronic noises have changed. Crew checks for problem. A crew member opens the hatch and the fury of the Fremen, six of them whose vehicle we saw approaching have violent and amazing speed in their physical attack. The unconscious crew members are taken to the Fremen vehicle where each is subjected to the process of dehydration, retaining all of their body moisture in canisters. We've noticed the Fremen, strong and dark-skinned, and with features representing generations of hard, waterless desert life. The Fremen cloaks only partially conceal the undergarment worn by all Fremen, a still suit, which completely covers the body, skin tight like a skin diver's wetsuit. Tubes are seen around the suit some approach the mouth and have nipples at the end. Occasionally, a Fremen sucks the nipple, drinking in small amounts of his own recycled body moisture. The bodies of the dead crew members are thrown into the sand, hold on their bodies, and dissolve to the next scene. What do we think of that opening? Yeah, it's not too dissimilar to the opening of the new film in some regards, but it, the new film focuses on the Fremen as being the, the good guys, if you like, Whereas uh, this opening is very much the Fremen appear to be the baddies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's what, what I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, that's what I thought was interesting when I was reading this. I was like, wow, it's pretty wild. Like how similar this is, as he's Marcus saying to the new movie, how it's like almost like such a similar opening. That was something they were like focusing on. Well, it's interesting. All adaptations, these unmade ones, uh, Lynch's version, the new one, it's very obvious that the one thing everyone seems to agree upon in the adaptation is that Herbert's novel really just drops you instantly into the story and you kind of only figure out what the hell's even going on with, you know, Leto taking over Arrakis, like as you get further into the book and they're all kind of like, we just need to let the audience know what's <laughs> going on. Uh, and this version then, so after this, the kind of main departure from the book or anything we've seen before is that we see uh Leto and Duncan Idaho are both summoned to talk to the emperor. Um, and I guess just reminding either people who haven't read Dune the novel or haven't read it in a while. And obviously correct me if I'm wrong. The, the emperor is barely in Herbert's first book, right? Yeah. He only appears right at the very end. He's mentioned throughout, but we don't see him until the final yeah. battle. 
Uh, and here we see him right up top. I, I copied this down here, describing the emperor as like light occasionally refracts from the area around the emperor, revealing the presence of a protection shield, which is controlled from his belt. While the shield is in force, the emperor's voice will have a filtered quality. He will turn it on and off during the course of the conversation when he feels a clear voice is necessary to emphasize a point. It uh, doesn't seem like a great way to use your force field. People just have to wait until you're <laughs> going to say something dramatic and then they can shoot you. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good but, uh, but yeah, but it's interesting. And I guess it kind of makes sense from just, I don't know how, you know, people think of dealing with emperors or kings as, you know, summoning the nobleman before him to give him their instructions. Uh, here we also note that the Duke wonders out loud if it is intended to be a punishment, him taking over Dune. Uh, stemming from his long-standing opposition to the use of spice, uh, which I don't, that's not from the books, is it? Is Leto opposed to spice use? I don't think so, but I, I think he, I don't think he partakes of spice as heavily as other uh, imperial nobles do. Uh, it, it, this reminded me again of the new film because uh, Leto says pretty much, you know, there's no call we will not answer. Uh, <laughs> not in so many words, but, you know, the Emperor's asking him to take Arrakis, he doesn't want to, but he always follows what the Emperor's commands. And, you know, I always wonder uh, for those who listen to our uh, recent episode about Halloween four, one thing that is unmistakable after you see Halloween kills is that it almost feels like the filmmakers of Halloween kills read this unproduced Dennis Etchinson script for Halloween four and took some inspiration. I always do kind of wonder if people making these movies comb through these uh, old unmade versions that are floating around online online. Probably not, but. Or I, I wonder that too, because this is the way Jorowski's Dune opens. It opens with Leto meeting with the emperor and the whole situation, this whole situation happens there too. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, so, one thing that pops up in a number of adaptations is ultimately you've got these great houses, but you never see them interact until they're killing each other. So having scenes where they're meeting the emperor or, or meet, there's another adaptation where the baron and the duke are there and the emperor's effectively passing the key to the city from one to the other. So it at least gets them all in the same room and allows for that exposition at the start. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah, it's not not in any of the books, but every adaptation struggles with that start. Villeneuve said he tried to start the new movie with the Gom Jabbar scene, which is how the book starts. And it just didn't work. You know, you're throwing people mm. in the deep end. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I mean, in, this, in this whole scene, then Leto has a conversation with the emperor about Jessica and Paul kind of laying more of that setup about uh, that their situation. And then. When Leto leaves, the Emperor turns to a screen on the wall and the Baron pops up. And that's in this version when the audience would have been clued in on the fact that uh, the Emperor and the Baron are colluding to take down House Atreides. Um, and then we get uh, and it's interesting how, you know, when you talk about the Gam Jabbar scene is like, you know, famous scene from the book and something that all the movies deal with in their their own ways so it's interesting to see how the two treatments we're doing today uh talk about it and jesse do you want to read page six here interior atreides castle caladan the great hall of the castle the great stone floors are worn the red and black atreides banners hang from the rough walls at the far end of the hall sits an old woman her hair matted like spider webs her skin dark and weathered her shoulders stooped, her eyes downcast. Paul, followed by his mother Jessica, walks cautiously towards her. They stop as she speaks, her cracked voice echoing in the empty hall. Do you know who I am, Paul Atreides? The boy dressed in black, his penetrating steel gray, gray eyes are fixed on the old woman, an impressive young man with features older than his years should allow. Do you know who I am, Reverend Mother? Oh, I know who you are thought to be. You think I am this Kwisatz Haderach? Jessica interrupts with, interrupts with the, he has never been told those words. And the Reverend Mother holds out her hand. Come. As if commanded to do so, he kneels in front of the Reverend Mother. The Reverend Mother touches Paul's neck with her hand. 
You have Bene Gesserit dreams, young man. Tell me your dreams. A brief and vague vision of shifting sands, the sounds of the whistling wind and a rhythmic thumping. Fighting to come out of the vision. I am the son of Duke Leto Atreides. I am not Bene Gesserit, old witch. The Reverend Mother, with total concentration, her hand pressed tightly against Paul's neck. Your Bene Gesserit dreams, Paul Atreides. Paul, now overcome by the woman's power, closes his eyes. The vision in unnatural color, strong winds blowing across an open desert, rhythmic thumping and horrifying screams as ocean waves seem to spill over the desert. Yes, yeah, so no uh, box in this scene. Yeah, that surprised me because uh, obviously this is 1972, 73, 74. And so the special effects for the worms, you can imagine them cutting back on that and the shield effects. But sticking your hand in a black box seems to be a relatively <laughs> yeah, simple <laughs> effect. <laughs> and, and maybe that's because it's a treatment and it, that part has been left out. But I'm surprised that the, the, the pain box isn't included at all because so much of this script is lifted word for word from yeah. the novel itself. No, I, I thought the same thing of like, why, why omit? It's such a ultimately iconic element from the book and any movies that's going to use it. I mean, basically Don Coscarelli essentially lifted it to put in Phantasm. Totally. It's just a cool idea. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like 100%. No, through I love it through from here to the, the final scene in this treatment. She's so fixated on his dreams, right? She really leans on the dream reality. And I just got to appreciate of all the different versions, the way she's described in this script is closest to the way she's described in the book, which is this wizened old crone with like spiderweb hair. And I love that in the in the uh, Avalon Hill game. That's what we got from her. We've never oh, really Jesse's seen this. He's holding up. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. She's that's really... a very different look than I mean, right? I can't. I so associate the design from the Lynch movie totally. with the Bene Gesserit that I, I realize that's not from the book, but the idea of their shaved heads was just fried in my brain as a kid. I can it's never see it. You're right. They're very iconic in that movie. And seeing what Jesse just held up, it's like, yeah, what a trip. What a, what a difference. There's something because Sean Phillips is just such an extraordinary actress, but you know, between the, the draping gown, the shaved head and the steel grill in her mouth, it's like, that's, that's pretty defining for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then after this, uh, okay. you know, the Atreides get to Arrakis and we have a scene here, the kind of thing that I feel like we would have gotten into more of this. If this, if you had done Dune as a TV show, I get why you end up cutting it out of most of the movies. But in the movies, it seems like essentially no one lives on Arrakis except for the Fremen and then whatever family in their like military. But this has a scene in a royal residency dining hall where uh, Leto is meeting with the important foreign families of Arrakis, the overdressed women and wealthy businessmen. Um, they sit around a table and, you know, toast and talk politics and toast with water. I, I love the how water is always treated on Arrakis is interesting. Um, and this this scene is actually after. Wait, does this even this doesn't have the the sandworm eating the machine, does it? No, that's not in this either. Yeah. That because yeah, you're right. This is where this scene would be in the book. Yeah, because they're giving him shit for losing mining equipment, but we don't have that scene, which as Mark was kind of saying, when you think of the special effects they had, the pre-Star Wars special effects one does wonder what they would have done with yeah. the worm. There is the, there is a spice mining inspection in this script. Uh, it's, it's Duncan that goes with them, not Gurney. Um, but I don't think we actually see a worm in that, but they do lose the harvester. Yeah, we just kind of hear about it, I yeah. guess. Or Yeah. I get, but yeah, uh, I get. The, this, the banquet scene is Frank Herbert's favorite scene in the book, apparently. And so he really? was, yeah, he was gutted that that didn't make it into Lynch's version. And uh, there is an early version of the script for the new June that has a banquet script, uh, scene in. It's not clear if that was filmed or not. There's some argument online about that. <laughs> um, but it, it's a, it's a it's a fun scene. There's lots of politics going on in the in the book and sort of uh, hidden meanings and uh, subtext. Uh, but yeah, it is basically people sat around talking, not very really funny. Yeah. 
it just makes no, me it's... think, I don't know if anyone's watching the new foundation TV show, but it just, you know, Asimov has even said himself when it kind of finally came time to write his uh, first prequel book after like 30 years. And he revisited the original trilogy. And he's like, ah, these it's amazing that people love these books so much because they're just people in rooms talking to each other. I'm oh, sorry, totally... Jesse, you were going to say, Oh no, no. I just, I just wanted to jump in. Yeah. I, it's funny before I'd seen the Villeneuve film, that with the banquet scene was the one I was most hoping to see adapted uh, because if, even though what it lacks in action, it shows it's probably one of the best character scenes for Duke Leto because it shows him as the master chess player. It unpacks a lot of the politics, economics, you know, internecine strife of the universe. And and I love that Frank loved that scene so much. You, you, you can tell me, didn't he actually record this on an LP? Like he did like here, here's my favorite scene from Dune. It's me reading the banquet scene on an LP in like 1973 or something. <laughs> no, I, I think Mark no is going to get that LP uh, right now. I think he's, uh, of course, he's so going to get it. Shit. <laughs> that's the, uh, the banquet scene. Oh, oh, that's a cool cover. That's oh, awesome. Wow. Very hard to find. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, this is maybe a good it. chance to tell the, our listeners that if they get the Electric <laughs> Now app, uh, which is a free app. They can see video versions of all our podcasts and you will actually be able to see what Jesse and Mark have held up recently. <laughs> yeah, um, but, and by the way, this sequence was going to be in Jodorowsky's Dune and it was going to like, people always talk about the deer hunter wedding scene. Like it was oh, going to, wow. it was going to go beyond that. It was an epic, epic <laughs> as Mark knows <laughs> insane. I think there was four balls not you know what i mean like yep. uh, there was like the spice ball the fremen ball harkonnens were having one all going on at the same time he was cutting back and forth with uh, and don't, it, don't forget the hippo the hippo wrestling scene oh, <laughs> wow. yeah. oh yeah that's yeah it was insane wait who was gonna wrestle the hippo uh, one of the spice smugglers i think it was <laughs> and it, wait, how, how is... had, a, had a hippo in um holy mountain so i, right, I think right. it was, he cast him the same hippo <laughs> yeah he's like i really like that hippo we hit it off. Um, <laughs> how, wait, yeah. how is Herbert's uh, performance on that LP? <laughs> um, he's, yeah, he's, he's got a pretty good uh, reading voice. He did several scenes from various books as LPs. Uh, he's never recorded the whole book, but there's, uh, it's, it's good for uh, finding out how the pronunciation of certain words are from, you know. So wait, does he say right. Harkonnen, not Harkonnen? Harkonnen, I think, yeah. Okay, because again, mm. it, I, I just think of Lynch. That movie was my introduction to everything. So in my brain, it's yeah, Baron exactly. Harkonnen. And it always throws me off in audiobooks or the new movie. Harkonnen, Harkonnen, Harkonnen. Yeah, Atreides, yeah. Atreides. Yeah. Yeah, all... <laughs> yeah Lynch, Lynch's pronunciation is canon in my head as well. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe that was Dino's pronunciation. You never know. <laughs> apparently, apparently, Frank Herbert did do a pronunciation guide and, and sent it to um the uh, lynch's production company there but huh. uh, whether or not they followed it i'm not sure yeah uh, Brad Dourif, pronunciation of lansrad is completely wrong <laughs> <in it. laughs> uh, yeah so this you know i mean but i guess everyone tries to have the banquet scene and then so who knows if it would have made it there it's the 70s i feel like in the 70s a studio would have allowed you to have the big banquet scene 100 um, percent. i agree <laughs> i think it would have definitely been in there yeah uh, and so then we have a, a different version of the famous hunter seeker scene in this, which again, refresher for the audience uh, is normally that the hunter seeker comes in to try to kill Paul. He holds really still, you know, it's like battling a T-Rex rules. If you, if you just don't move, it won't get you. Uh, and then uh, Mapes enters and it almost kills her. But in this scene, it's Leto that uh, almost gets killed and Duncan destroys the seeker and then there's a scene after this where paul and jessica have like a psychic conversation where they're kind of acknowledging that paul almost let his dad just die uh, and i thought that was an interesting alteration mm. yeah very odd uh yeah, the, the telepathy is not something that's really part of the june canon uh, in the new movie there seems to be some sort of psychic connection between paul and jessica but explicit telepathy is is not part of the generate any Jesuit's skill set. Yeah. A lot of stuff with his premonitions here. Uh, another big change is that we have Paul puts on a still suit 
And he's like off exploring the desert when he sees in the distance that the Harkonnens uh, are attacking. And then, and this is again a treatment. So, you know, it's not hard to say that something's missing a scene, but in the treatment, we cut directly from that to Paul and Jessica are already captured. So I'm not even really sure how this movie was intending to do that. Uh, but I'm also wondering if this was like another, like, you know, budgetary idea. It was like, oh, the whole attack will just be Paul standing on a sand dune and kind of sees explosions off in the distance. Yeah, that confused me as well, because the page numbers are right, but the, the page is like continued and it's like, well, it's not a continued scene. So yeah. <laughs> it does feel like it does feel like something got lost somewhere. Yeah. And then when when they're captured, then Jessica just says to him, your father is dead, of course, is our <laughs> we have like none of yeah. the stuff with Dr. Yui or, you know, it's just kind of all. I'm sure they would. In some ways, it's kind of like I always think of people read Game of Thrones novels, uh, but those were kind of famous for the fact that like battles would always happen off screen or like while a character was knocked out. Uh, <laughs> it was like George happens. R. Martin was trying to save budget from his own words. <laughs> the same happens in June as well. Frank Herbert doesn't really describe the battles. Um, so. It, it, it normally jump cuts to after the battle and then people talk about what happened during the battle. Yeah, and uh, I'm, no. shocked, I'm shocked too, because you can totally see that Jacobs wanted a Lawrence of Arabia for himself and this being desert like, and, you know, we'll get to later on how he first goes after David Lean. Like he wanted that. And I'm shocked that, you know, he didn't touch on, any of those epic battles like that's in like Lawrence of Arabia for this. Cause he yeah. wanted Lawrence of Arabia meets 2001. That's what he saw in this. He's mm. like, I, I, this is what I want. And especially during the early seventies, you can see, you know, why he would go after this. Uh, and this also touches on an element that's from the books. And uh, I mean, maybe it'll be in part two of the new movies. I mean, I'm forgetting if there's any element of this in the Lynch one, but I don't think there is, which is the idea that uh, Jessica is actually Baron Harkonnen's Harkonnen. I got to get through my head. The Baron's uh, (laughs) illegitimate daughter. And thus Paul is also related to the Baron. That's, that's completely stripped from the Lynch version, right? Um, The only hint of that is that the, uh, the ginger hair. So Jessica and Aaliyah have got ginger hair. And so the Harkonnen. So, it's a nod, but it's never explicitly mentioned. Uh, so that was going to be a part of this. Uh, then, you know, we kind of follow the basic beats where they find the Fremen. Uh, we have a scene in here where a woman named Hera, who is the daughter of a smuggler who's with the Fremen, like offers to get them off the planet. But Paul's like, no, I'm going to stay. Um, and then we cut to five years later. Um, and Another character, other characters from the book that I think appear in the Lynch version are not in the new one, but again, maybe we'll be in part two are the Fenrings. Is that how we would all pronounce that name? Count and Lady Fenring, which has a whole thing where because of what's going on with Paul uh, and the Bene Gesserits are being upset. Lady Fenring is a Bene Gesserit and she tries to seduce Fade Routha, who's another character who's Sting from the Lynch movie, I assume will also be in part two of the new ones was not in part one, but he is the Baron's son. But Lady Fenring is going to seduce Fade to preserve the bloodline, to create a new Kwisatz Haderach. Um, a weird change in here when we cut to five years later, for those who've read Dune Messiah, you know, a huge plot point in that is the idea of Paul not having an heir uh, and the reasons why he doesn't have one and how that is overcome. And he ends up having twins who become very important characters in Children of Dune. But in this, we just cut to five years later and Paul and Chani have one four-year-old son. I thought that was an interesting yeah. choice. In, in the book, he does have a, uh, a son, uh, Leto, the first Leto the second, oh who, my doesn't God. Survive, who doesn't survive totally all the way through the book. That. Oh, it's similar to the uh, book, but it's he wasn't four years old. He was just a, a baby uh, in the in the book. Wait, so what happens to that kid then? I totally don't remember this. Uh, the Harkonnens t- attack one of the Seachers and Le- the first Leto the second is killed, Aww, which sorts of, uh, sets Paul off on a bit of a crazy, even more revenge than before. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't blame you for not remembering that because like I, when I went through the book again recently, I completely forgot about that too. And then when he dies, you don't see it. You just kind of hear about it because as Mark was saying, he kind of, it's crazy how big the book is and how tight some of the stuff is like where the action will take place. You're like, wait, we're already here. Isn't there, shouldn't there be so many more pages left, but there isn't, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. you really, yeah, I, com- I, I forgot about that in the book. Cause like a lot of my due knowledge before I read the book was pure David Lynch. <laughs> then when I read the book, my mind was blown like, wow, this is so, you know, <laughs> cause I've always, I've known David Lynch is so well. So I completely forgot about this as well until I recently reread it. I mean, good. Well, this is why you guys are here. Otherwise, I would have yeah, wrongfully dude. given these guys crap for changing <laughs> the important mythology. The child is in the miniseries and it is also in the Jodorowsky storyboards as well, briefly. So it does. Uh, he does appear in other adaptations. The doomed first kid. Mm-hmm. I um, never watched the miniseries, to be honest. That's one that... I saw the first one when it was new. I have not revisited. And then I don't think I saw the one that. uh, James McAvoy's in. Yeah. McAvoy was a early work from him. Mm -hmm. Um, So this also has Chani is. uh, Which do they say in the the new movie? Now I don't remember. But Chani is the daughter of Liet Kynes. Yeah. Who they changed to being a woman in the new movie, but I'm assuming they're maybe going to keep that connection, but they just didn't. Yeah. In the interviews, they do mention the fact that they are mother and daughter, but that's not mentioned in the film. In the at movie. All. Okay. Uh, and in this Chani is like working on in this, still her father's um, experiments, which were about, you know, essentially bringing water to Dune. Uh and so there's like scenes of her, I don't know, like working in her dad's lab and stuff. Uh, the Fremen attack. Baron calls the emperor for help, but the emperor doesn't want Paul harmed. I, I was kind of confused by some of this stuff from the treatment. I don't know, was this like clearer to you guys what was going on with the emperor wanting to like save Paul and kind of? I, I turning... think that was the Benny Gesserit's um, instructions. They. They thought Paul was a quiz at Hadarak, so they wanted to preserve that bloodline because they weren't sure about the Harkonnen bloodline. And uh, in this, a random Fremen kills the Baron with a Chris knife uh, rather than Jessica's daughter, which I thought was a weird change. Yeah, I had but... exactly the same note. <laughs> <laughs> it's not yeah. even a named Fremen or anything. Yeah, it's just like an extra. I mean, I guess that would have been a great part for that random extra if they'd made this. <laughs> I get to kill the villain of the movie. <laughs> like the guy that audience hasn't Scar- even seen me before. Right? Like the guy that killed Scarface. <laughs> Who is that guy? <laughs> um, and then we, so this ends then with a scene, uh, a very abrupt ending with a scene. Again, there's, there's a feeling that there's things missing from <laughs> this treatment, even though the page numbers are all correct. Uh, but Jesse and I will read through this. This is Paul now before the emperor and the reverend mother. Uh, spacecraft chamber, a white antiseptic looking room. A reverend mother is seated staring at Paul. She has features similar to the reverend mother we saw on Caladan, but this is not her. Also in the room are Count Fenring and the emperor Shaddam. Do you know who I am, Paul Atreides? A vision comes to Paul, desert, winds, and rhythmic thumping. Paul fights it and cuts off the vision. You are wrong, witch. I am Paul Muad'Dib, a Fremen. A vision forces itself in of his father being murdered. He cuts it off again. You are of your mother, bred Bene Gesserit, trained Bene Gesserit ways. Paul fights it, turns, tense and shaking to Shaddam. You have my demands. The Fremen will rule Arrakis. No. Spice. You have Bene Gesserit dreams. Tell me your dreams. Paul continues to try and address the Emperor. The visions keep melting in all flashbacks. Fremen will remake the face of the desert. It will be fit for human life. No spice. Tell me your dreams. The vision of love, Chani. Can you see beyond? Can you see the way beyond? There is a sense of excitement now. The Reverend Mother is almost screaming, a sense of anticipation as the three watch Paul. Paul is in a trance. 
The first vision, which is not a flashback, melts in. Fremen, like robots, digging spice out of the sand. Can you see the shortening of the way? Tell us the shortening of the way. I see Fremen slaves. I see the spice. I see myself. Puisat's Hatterack. Visions of the desert. Fremen camps are blown over by sand. The testing stations dry and full of sand. Bushes and plants dried up. The pools of water are dry. Desolation. Rich red spice. And now he's speaking like a computer. We cut in and out of the visions to hear Paul droning. Let it be in the age of Padishah and Perushadam the fourth, the Bene Gesserit bred a Kwisatz Haderach. He went among the Fremen and became their leader. The de- these desert tribesmen had dedicated generations of their people to remaking this planet, but only the dry desert yields the spice. The spice feeds the mind. Loss of spice would cause universal holocaust. The Fremen sacrifice would be futile. The order of the Imperium would be destroyed. This saith the Kwisatz is the shortening of the way. The visions have continued of the sand reclaiming the moist Fremen basins. A Fremen body, like a drowning man, sinks into the sand. It is Stilgar, and then to black. So yeah, there had to be more. That's a really weird way to end this movie. I'm not even really sure. I, it's, it's basically just like Paul sells out at the end, I feel would be the implication. Yeah, it reminded me a bit of the parallax view, you know, where the hero is all the way through <laughs> trying to overcome something. And at the end, you realize that he's just been, you know, their puppet all along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it makes no sense. It's, it's the ending because it would just be missing a paragraph because that's the ending. <laughs> it's very yeah. odd because then it says end is nothing else. Like, it's very strange. Yeah. So who knows? But you know, the, these treatments, who knows where this yeah. fell in their attempted development, what came before or after, what the thing we're reading even necessarily is. It does have the look of being retyped in the modern age. Uh, this is not like a Xeroxed copy. Oh, it, um, I have a Xerox copy of oh, it. Oh, you do? And it, and it is the, uh, and it is pretty much word for word. So, okay. I, so I do have the original printed out that's been scanned but this was just easier to read and yeah but um yeah but this as we were saying before this was kind of like a test like can this can this be adapted and because of the strength of this um in august um jacobs makes the offer august 1972 jacobs makes an offer to acquire the rights to dune and he gets them and then a few days after he gets the rights August 23rd, 1972, he approaches David Lean. And as people that don't know who David Lean is, he directed these large scale epics, The Bridge and the River Choir. Choir, Am I saying all right? The Choir. Choir, Dr. Shivago and Lawrence of Arabia. And which this is, you know, as we were as we were saying, is kind of was being pitched as 2001 meets that. So. Of course, he's going to be the first one they go after. And then in September 11th, 1972 is when like Hollywood Reporter and Variety officially announced that, you know, Dune has been acquired by Arthur P. Jacobs and filming is set to begin in early 1974. And then in September, in September, oh, actually right before, and then September 1972, Variety reported that Frank Herbert, who had been hired, has been hired as a technical advisor on the film, and he was scouting locations in Pakistani cities and has negotiated with government officials to spend one million of the three million budget in Pakistan. And then Frank Herbert's bio has a little thing where it says, while Herbert was in Pakistan, he got word that Jacobs reviewed the option and lean David lean and Robert bolt were to reunite. Robert bolt wrote Lawrence of Arabia, but I can't find it anywhere else. Robert bolts 
um, attachment to this. And, and then it gets carried on to, to today with articles that he was going to write this and Lean was going to direct, but I cannot find anywhere. I see ex- Mark shaking his head as well. <laughs> what, what do you see, Mark? What- uh, yeah, all of the documentation I've seen, it's, there's plenty of other uh, screenwriters mentioned, but Robert Bolt's name isn't even brought up. So David Lean seems to have declined the offer, but at least his mm-hmm. name is on in, in black and white. Uh, associated with this project, but nothing for Robert Bolt at all that I can find. Same here. And that's in, and that's in Frank Herbert's bio. So, and I, <laughs> yeah. maybe they've a... got access to more material than we have. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, and then uh, October, 1972. Um, yeah, I guess um, it's out of the hands of David Lean uh, or, or, um, they're trying to work things out with David Lean, but there was going to be another director named Charles uh, Jarrett. Yep. Was possibly. Do you know anything about Charles Jarrett, Mark? Condo Man, I think is the film he's most famous for. In my mind, Condo <laughs> Man, interesting. <laughs> I think that was him. Wow, Condo Man. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. On Disney Plus, I believe. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. I associate that with the Disney Channel in the 80s when I was a kid. Yeah, and then uh, he, and then that director was suggesting Terence Marsh, the production designer of uh, Mary Queen of Scotland. And Marsh won an Oscar for Man of All Seasons and was responsible for finding locations for Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia as production designer. And they were going to do, they were going to use helicopters and they were going to change, they're going to use the, uh, the insides of helicopters. And then they would uh, use miniatures of gliders. They were going to design for the thopters sequences. Hmm. And then 1972, it was announced that uh, Rospro Pellenberg. Rospo Pellenberg. That's how you you say his name? And he was pre- previously known for his work as a New York City skyscraper architect. And he was hired to adapt Herbert's novel. And so this is, so I guess this is like his first gig. He'd well, done no, the I, Lord of the Rings adaptation for John Borman before. Yeah, uh, so that was, was of, before oh, this? Wow. Yeah, he was kind of Borman's oh. protege. So he's like got a lot of uncredited... Uh, connections to Borman projects. So he actually doesn't, when you look him up in the IMDb, he has very few like full on credits. I think he, had, he co-wrote exorcist two. Um, I knew him growing up and I've actually done a Q and a for him is that his one directing credit is he directed the Brad Pitt eighties slasher movie cutting class. That's he directed that. Yes. No uh, way. And it was wow. after I did that Q and a or prepping to do that Q and a with him. Uh, I was like looking him up and I was like, what is this guy's like filmography that he wound up doing this movie? I mean, that's a movie I have a soft spot for. It's a very weird movie, but this Mm -hmm. guy has, you know, and this is how Hollywood works. I should also note, um, uh, Steve and I did an article that used him for, I think it's Fangoria issue number eight. It's the one that has Pat, great Pat Oswalt cover of the new Fangoria, um, but for his unproduced version of the stand, because I was gonna say, I think the way Hollywood works is because he had this very high, high profile adaptation of Lord of the Rings that didn't get made. It was all books as one script, but you know, it was John Borman. I think it made the rounds of the industry. So everyone got the idea of like, Oh, this is the guy who can adapt these, as we said it before, unadaptable giant books. So he also did uh, this, Uh, He did an unproduced version of Foundation. And then, like I was saying, he finally got brought in to do the George Romero version of The Stand, which never got made. So he's kind of got a whole unmade career of all these movies that would have been like the biggest movie, at least budget wise, of whatever year they were intended to come out. They just never made it to the finish line. What a trip. I always thought the Lord of the Rings was after this, but I have that draft. I need to read it. Yeah, well, that'll be that's an inevitable future episode yeah, at I some guess. point. <laughs> wow. One, one we're on, while we're talking about Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, the animated Lord of the Rings, the Ralph yeah. uh, Bakshi one. Yeah, there is an article in which he says he's negotiating for the rights for a science fiction film with giant worms in. <laughs> and that's the only mention I, uh, I can find of it is in one newspaper article. So oh, an animated wow. Ralph Bashi Lord of the um, 
June movie would have been fantastic, but <laughs> oh my goodness, I didn't know about that. That sounds wow. awesome. Is he still alive, Bakshi? He'd be in. I think so. Because he's, he's, he's when you talk about things that just get one line mentioned, I remember seeing at one point uh, that Ralph Bakshi was they were going to do an animated creep show three, and I feel like wow. that's the depth of info I've ever seen on that was just one sentence in something. Um, wow. But yeah, Rospo is an interesting guy. Uh, we thought about maybe trying to get him involved in this episode, but you know he's. He's getting up there in years. I feel like he's got a pretty decent memory, but maybe not for the flow of a podcast. Um, he didn't have great things to say about the Lynch <laughs> version uh, when it randomly came up when I was interviewing him <laughs> over the phone for the stand article. Now, oh, what a trip. Well, that that does bring us up to. Um, yeah, so like. Yeah, so in December, Jacobs reaches out Oh, actually, in December, I think Jacobs Jacobs reaches out to inform Turkey that they'll be shooting that he'll be shooting uh, the film there because he's been in touch with them about that using that as a location. And then January first, nineteen seventy three, um, that's uh, Ross. Oh, actually, uh, January twenty third, nineteen seventy three, uh, Pellenberg's treatment is officially done, and that's what leads us to that. Uh, yeah, and I should say Rosbo is interesting uh, is because he's one of those guys who I'm now even forgetting the series of events, but, you know, like he was raised by Germans living in the UK and then they moved to Italy. Uh, now he's also been living in America for like 30 years. So he's got one of those unplaceable accents. He's like a Highlander. <laughs> you know? uh, he just sounds very weird and like foreign, but in a way you can't even begin to like guess. We are going to hit pause right here and pick things back up in the next episode when we continue our conversation about the unmade adaptations of Dune with our guests Mark Bennett and Jesse Merlin. If you'd like more content from us, you should follow us on Twitter at NeverMadeFilm and Instagram at BestMoviesNeverMade. You should also download the Electric Now app so you can watch video of our podcast and all the podcasts on the Electric Surge network. We'd like to thank everyone here at Electric Surge, including Bill Ritter and our producers Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.